And there has been a ton of movement in the two sprawling criminal investigations into former President Donald Trump, ones that are being conducted by special counsel Jack Smith. Those two investigations are, of course, Trump's squirreling away of classified documents at his Mar-a-Lago Beach Club and Trump's efforts to subvert American democracy and overturn the 2020 election results. Today, eagle-eyed NBC reporters spotted conservative activist Tom Fitton going into the D.C. federal courthouse where those grand juries meet, along with a DOJ prosecutor who works for the special counsel. Fitton is the president of Judicial Watch, the ultra-conservative outfit that enjoys suing the federal government to, quote-unquote, stop government corruption. Now, we do not know which grand jury Tom Fitton who is a close Trump ally, which one he appeared before today. And that's because Tom Fitton has the dubious distinction of being of interest to prosecutors in both special counsel investigations. On the January 6th front, just a few days before the election, Tom Fitton drafted a statement for then-President Trump declaring that Trump had won the election, even though that election hadn't actually happened yet. Here is how January 6th committee member, Congresswoman Zoe Lofgren, described that memo this past October. The draft statement, which was sent on October 31st, declares, we had an election today and I won. And the Fitton memo specifically indicates a plan that only the votes counted by the election day deadline, and there is no election day deadline, would matter. On election day, just after 5 p.m., Mr. Fitton indicated he'd spoken with the president about the statement. Tom Fitton actually suggested that Trump could claim victory by saying he won all the votes that were counted by a made-up election day deadline and just ignore all the other ballots, which is, hmm. Now, on the Mar-a-Lago front, CNN reported that it was Tom Fitton who was in Trump's ear saying, you can keep all the documents. They're yours. You own them, which, as it turned out, was just totally plainly wrong. So the Justice Department grand juries have been busy here. Last week, Trump's top Department of Homeland Security official, Ken Cuccinelli, he apparently testified before the grand jury investigating Trump's efforts to subvert the election. You'll remember that Cuccinelli is a DHS official. Trump asked to seize the voting machines in key swing states six weeks after Election Day. Cuccinelli declined that honor, but his discussions with Trump are of apparent interest to federal prosecutors. And also this week, it was reported that two people who searched Trump properties for classified documents, they also testified before a federal grand jury in the Mar-a-Lago probe. Meanwhile, this list is long, I know, over New York City in another investigation into the former president. Trump Organization controller Jeffrey McConney reportedly testified today before the grand jury investigating the Stormy Daniels hush money payments. Just this evening, the New York Times is reporting that prosecutors are also warning that they may file additional charges against presently jailed longtime Trump Organization CFO Alan Weisselberg in an attempt to leverage more cooperation from Weisselberg in their investigation into Trump. Remember that Weisselberg is serving a five-month sentence at Rikers after pleading guilty to tax fraud charges. And then there is the looming threat of the Fulton County, Georgia, criminal investigation into Trump's efforts to overturn the election results in that state, a probe that many experts say poses the highest threat for Trump. Fulton County District Attorney Fonnie Willis recently said that decisions are imminent regarding indictments after a special grand jury submitted its recommendations to her last month. Grand juries everywhere. 
there are a lot of moving parts right now on multiple fronts in terms of in terms of President Trump's legal exposure. At the federal level, there is more than enough for Attorney General Merrick Garland to mull over. And the AG will ultimately have to make a decision based on a recommendation by the special counsel as to whether charges are warranted in the two Trump investigations. And now there is one more thing that Merrick Garland has to think about. John Durham, the special counsel appointed by Trump's attorney general, Bill Barr, to investigate the origins of the Trump-Russia probe. Well, John Durham is still on the job, and he now reports to Merrick Garland. If you remember, the two cases John Durham brought to, the, brought to trial ended in acquittals. Durham has yet to find any elaborate deep state conspiracy by the intelligence community to discredit Trump. But the New York Times latest reporting on Durham, which is a bombshell piece, it shows just how much Barr seems to have meddled in the Durham probe and how he was determined to make sure John Durham uncovered something while drinking scotch with John Durham on the regular. The paper reported that three senior prosecutors on Durham's team resigned over frustrations and disagreements over the handling of this inquiry. We also learned about a European trip that Barr and Durham took, where they received a credible tip linking Trump to suspected financial crimes. Barr assigned that criminal investigation of the former president to John Durham, and the public never heard anything about it until now. Bill Barr spoke to the L.A. Times last night to defend his handling of John Durham's investigation in an attempt to pre-spin the eventual report's findings. And regarding that previously undisclosed criminal investigation involving Trump, Barr said, quote, it turned out to be a a complete non-issue. Really? What happened there? Already members of Congress are demanding answers. Will Merrick Garland tell the American public? Will he release the Durham report in full or in parts? Joining us now is Charlie Savage, Washington correspondent for The New York Times and the lead byline on this incredible piece of reporting in The Times. Charlie, thank you for being here tonight. We've been so eager to talk to you since this first the story first was published. And now we have a fair amount of pushback from the former AG, Bill Barr, who's, of course, a subject of this investigation. What is your initial reaction to his effective rebuttals and his overall sense that there's no there there in terms of some of the very pressing questions that you raised in the piece? Well, my, my first reaction was, oh, wow, he confirmed that there was an investigation involving Trump that Durham uh, handled. Uh, so that's interesting. We didn't have anyone on the record confirming that before. And so that was nice of him. Uh, we still don't, I mean, maybe he's right that it went nowhere. I, I, you know, we don't know. We just don't know what that thing was. We don't know what steps Durham took. We don't know what he found out. We don't know why he chose, uh, to bring no charges. Perhaps it was as Bill Barr says that there was no there there. Um, Nevertheless, it's extraordinary that it happened at all and that no one knew about it and that when it leaked, that Durham's uh, administrative review had evolved into encompassing a criminal investigation. Uh, everyone thought that meant he had found evidence of a crime by the people who had investigated Trump in Russia. And the Justice Department let that misimpression linger when it was this very different thing. So at a minimum, it's extraordinary that Barr confirmed that that indeed happened. 
Yeah, I mean, and it is extraordinary. The fact of the matter is, exactly as you point out, the Justice Department let the impression that this was about the intelligence agencies and not Trump. They let that linger. Nobody had any suspicion that this was a criminal investigation into the former president. Um, one of the things or that involving him in some way. Yeah, yeah exactly. Uh, on, say, we don't know if it was into him or just proximate to him. Somehow yeah. in the sphere of Trump, nonetheless, not about the, the, the folks that launched the Russia investigation. Exactly. The, one of the, the, the sort of questionable acts you highlight in the piece is the, the appointment of John Durham to investigate this tip, right, into potential uh, financial fraud, fraudulent criminal activities regarding finances. And Bill Barr defends his choice of uh, uh, John Durham as into investigating this, saying the idea that there was a thin basis for appointing Durham doesn't hold water. Can you explain how and why the, the Times and your reporting suggests that it, it was actually a, a thin basis to appoint Durham? Well, the reason that Barr put Durham into motion in the first instance was that Barr, while a private citizen uh, before Trump hires him to be attorney general, just watching Fox News, had come to the conclusion, the hunch, the suspicion that there was some kind of intelligence abuse at the heart of the Russia investigation, lurking in the origins of the Russia investigation. The CIA had done something or MI5 had done something. The Italian intelligence service had done something. He just knew that that was the case. He came, came in as he was confirmed, telling his aides he knew this was the case and he was going to get to the bottom of it. When he got a briefing about the actual origin of the Russian investigation, he said he didn't buy it. And that is what set Durham into motion. Now, I think what he was saying is, was a technical matter to the LA Times, which was, at first, that was an administrative review. It was not a criminal investigation. So when you're just setting someone to look at things, uh, which is sort of an odd thing for the Justice Department to do, but it does happen sometimes, you don't need a you know reasonable, factual basis to suspect that there a crime has taken place. You don't need a predicate. Uh, so that's what he sets Durham into motion on, just on his, his hunch. Now, of course, Durham does eventually open not just that side criminal investigation that involves Trump somehow, but an actual criminal investigation as his hunt for intelligence abuses uh, that Barr thought was there hits a dead end and there just aren't any that he can find. Uh, he doesn't close up shop. He says uh, he and Barr decide that they're going to sort of morph this investigation into a different rationale, which is a hunt for a basis to accuse the Hillary Clinton campaign of defrauding the government by essentially framing Donald Trump for collusion. It was Hillary's fault that people, you know, suspected Trump and Russia or wanted to know more about those connections. And was the theory, right, that they were they were pursuing. And that was a criminal investigation. They were going to a judge unsuccessfully trying to get something called a D order to get into private emails and eventually using grand jury powers to get into private emails of a George Soros aide. You can't do that unless it's a criminal investigation. And ultimately, they do uh, bring two narrow indictments against people with some, you know, connection to the Clinton campaign on false statement charges, which Durham uses to insinuate this conspiracy that he was unable to prove or charge. And those, both, both of those cases ended in very swift acquittals, uh, collapsed in court. But to his point that this, well, I, this, when this thing started, it wasn't a criminal investigation, so I didn't need a solid basis. I could just do it. Uh, you know, it is technically true insofar as it goes, but it doesn't explain the entirety of what happened here. 
dare I say, it doesn't hold water. <laughs> Paraphrasing the former attorney general himself. Charlie Savage, Washington correspondent for The New York Times. Thank you for the incredible reporting, Charlie. We have a thousand questions to ask you. Please come back soon. I want to turn now to Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. Barb, it's good to see you. Thank you for being here tonight. I want to just continue this conversation we're having about the onus on Merrick Garland and his uh, his shoulders. I hope they're strong enough. Um, Do you think we are do you think Merrick Garland is going to release the full Durham, the the findings from the Durham probe as, as much of a nothing burger as it may end up being like, what's your expectation given the controversy that clearly surrounds it? Well, of course, we don't know what might be contained within a final report. It's being written right now, but I think Merrick Garland has to be very careful here. I can imagine that his instincts, especially given his uh, desire to restore integrity and independence to the Justice Department, might be simply to disclose this in the interest of transparency. Here's what John Durham found, and here you go, it's out there. But I think he has to be really careful to make sure that he is not uh, assisting and enabling disinformation from coming into the the ecosystem of of uh, uh under the guise of uh this official justice department report and I, I think there's a worry about that so of course it depends on what's in it but to the extent it does what John Durham has already done in indictments of you know throwing in a lot of extra verbiage to dirty up people he wants to dirty up I think Merrick Garland needs to be really careful about whether he allows that to be released Yeah. And especially given the way Durham has behaved, sorry, Garland has behaved in recent weeks regarding the document sagas, um, President Biden's and former President Trump's respectively, appointing special counsels to both of those in a a bid to show equanimity at the Justice Department. One wonders what he does with a hot potato like the Durham probe, right? At the same time, you have two congressmen saying, oh, well, there needs to be an inspector general's investigation into the Durham probe. So you have like layers here, right? Do you release the findings of the Durham investigation and also launch an investigation into the investigation into the investigation? I mean, do you like what what options does he does he have here? I mean, does does he have to do both? And how convoluted would that be? I think that Merrick Garland actually has a responsibility to see what it is that John Durham wants to release and ask him to support those conclusions, uh, you know, to him verbally so that he feels satisfied that he can release this out into the world. And so I don't think Merrick Garland has to make a decision of, of an either or release or not. I think he can ask John Durham what's in there, what the basis is for disclosing it, uh, and to disclose only that which he thinks uh, will be helpful in sort of setting the record straight. But, you know, the origins of this, um, the Durham investigation, are, are really um, concerning because we already had an inspector general's report that found that the in Russia investigation was properly opened. And then we have William Barr asking John Durham to kind of repeat the work uh, but clearly with an agenda, uh, in, you know, in, in search of, uh, of a conclusion, in search of, of a factual basis. And so, you know, that alone, I think, makes me very skeptical of what John Durham might ultimately report here. You know, in the same way we saw William Barr distort the findings of Robert Mueller in his report, distortion and uh, misleading were the words of a federal judge who read William Barr's statements about that. Um, I'm concerned that that is what will be contained in John Durham's report as well. And so I think Merrick Garland has some responsibility here um, to 
make the hard decision. And maybe that decision is to not let this be released into the public domain. Or oh. maybe that decision is to uh, investigate further and make sure there's a factual basis for what he has to say. What a tough decision to make at such a fraught time for the DOJ, Barb. I mean, I, 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 we talked at the beginning of the show about the unbelievable number of investigative walls that seem to be closing in around Trump world. And I just want to go to the sort of breaking news we have this evening that the attorney general's office, uh, Manhattan prosecutors are trying to f- basically ratchet up the pressure on a man who is already in jail, who has very important information regarding Trump organization finances. I'm, of course, speaking about Alan Weisselberg. There's long been talk about whether prosecutors might try and, you know, off pressure him with further jail time to get him to finally flip on Trump. That appears to be happening now, if we believe the reporting from The New York Times, which I have no reason not to. Do you think it I mean, what's your assessment of that? And is it the right time to be really going for broke on the Stormy Daniels hush money, given everything else that's happening in the in the world of investigation pertaining to Donald Trump? Yeah, I hear Stormy Daniels, and I, I think wait, that was the Trump show season one. Aren't we at like season five now? I mean, that's, that's really going way back in time. But uh, it does seem that that uh, investigation has been resuscitated. And, you know, if you think about what that uh, that hush money payment was and the timing of it, it was right on the eve of the 2016 election at a time when the uh, Access Hollywood tape had come out. And so that that information could have been really devastating to Donald Trump's campaign. And so to fail to disclose that he made that expenditure on behalf of the campaign is a crime. And so I don't fault um, Alvin Bragg for looking into it. And if they can put together a case, uh, then maybe they do. I just don't know that Alan Weisselberg is the guy who is going to, you know, finally uh, flip on Donald Trump. He already had an opportunity to do it and he refused to do it. Now, maybe he knows more about this and didn't know other things about uh, the tax case, but it seems like he um, has been remained loyal to Donald Trump and is even willing to go to prison for him. And so I don't know that he's going to budge, but uh, I suppose it's worth a try. And it seems that they already have other witnesses in the form of Michael Cohen, uh, the controller of the Trump organization. Maybe they can do it without him, but I, I suppose it is worth exploring to determine and whether Alan Weisselberg has information that can be valuable in that investigation. Alan Weisselberg, 75 years old on Rikers Island as we speak. Barb McQuaid, former U.S. attorney for the Eastern District of Michigan. It's always good to see you, Barb. Thanks for your time tonight. Thanks, Alex. We have lots to get to this evening, including the truly unbelievable first days of the Republican-led 118th Congress and how Democrats should conduct themselves for the next two years, at least. Speaking of which, House Republicans voted today to strip Congresswoman Ilhan Omar of a House committee seat, decrying anti-Semitism while totally ignoring the same problematic language and behavior from members of their own party. That is next. Jen Psaki. Have you ever seen the House this dysfunctional? Rachel Maddow. If winning the election is his plan to stay out of prison, what happens in that election if and when he does not win it? Mondays, back to back. Talk about the stakes of this back and forth, given Trump's behavior. What do you make of the statement from Hamas? Why they're doing it? What, what do you think it means? Inside with Jen Psaki at 8 p.m. Eastern, followed by the Rachel Maddow Show at 9 p.m. Eastern. Mondays on MSNBC. 
Join MSNBC's Simone Sanders Townsend, Michael Steele, and Alicia Menendez as they team up to host The Weeknd. We want to get the newsmakers, the people that are in the middle of what is happening. It's about the conversation. A lot of Americans check out of conversations. We want to check them in. Conversation we begin and that you continue all week long. The Weeknd, Saturdays and Sundays at 8 a.m. Eastern on MSNBC. It was 2019, and newly elected Minnesota Congresswoman Ilhan Omar responded to a tweet about the role of Israel in American politics with six words. It's all about the Benjamins, baby. It was a reference to the 1997 Puff Daddy song, It's All About the Benjamins, and the subtext was that donor money was responsible for the outsized role that supporting Israel plays in U.S. politics. The tweet played into age-old anti-Semitic stereotypes about Jewish people using money to control political leaders. Congresswoman Omar was immediately called out for the tweet and quickly issued an unequivocal apology. But now, four years later, Kevin McCarthy and the Republican House are using that tweet as justification for their latest act of retribution. Today, House Republicans voted along party lines to strip Congresswoman Omar of her committee assignment on the House Foreign Affairs Committee. Their resolution specifically cited that four-year-old tweet as a central example of why the action was justified. If you had just fallen from the sky, you might think that meant that the Republican Party had a zero-tolerance policy for anti-Semitic tropes, like ones about Jewish people controlling politicians with their money. But anyone who has spent the last seven years on this planet and has not just fallen from the sky knows that that is not the case. Take, for instance, this tweet sent by Speaker of the House, Kevin McCarthy, during the 2018 election. We cannot allow Soros, Steyer, and Bloomberg to buy this election. Get out and vote Republican November 6th. Hashtag MAGA. The people McCarthy is referencing here are George Soros, Tom Steyer, and Michael Bloomberg, all Jewish billionaires who are regularly the subject of that same anti-Semitic trope about Jews controlling politicians. Here's candidate Donald Trump in 2015, speaking to the Republican Jewish coalition during a candidate forum. I'm in a different position than the other candidates because I'm the one candidate. I don't want any of your money. I don't want your money. Therefore, you're probably not going to support me. That's why you don't want to give me money. okay? but that's okay. You want to control your own politician. That's fine. Donald Trump told a room full of Jewish Republicans that he thought they were using their money to control politicians. Throughout his presidency, Trump regularly amplified anti-Semites on social media. He called Nazis who chanted, Jews will not replace us. He called them very fine people. Remember a few months ago when Trump invited anti-Semitic hip-hop artist Ye and a known white supremacist Holocaust denier to dine with him at his Florida home. Remember that? McCarthy and Trump are, last we checked, Republicans. They are leaders of the party, in fact. And then there is Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene, now an ally of Speaker McCarthy, who famously promoted an anti-Semitic conspiracy theory that blamed Jewish space lasers for wildfires in California. Both Congresswoman Greene and Republican Congressman Paul Gosar attended events hosted by the very same Holocaust-denying white supremacist that Trump had over for dinner. But instead of punishing them, as he did Ilhan Omar, Speaker McCarthy rewarded both Gosar and Greene in this Congress by giving them back committee assignments that had previously been taken away. It is clear, then, that today's vote on Congresswoman Ilhan Omar was not about condemning anti-Semitism. 
She seems to have been sought out for different reasons. And today, Congresswoman Omar made clear that despite the efforts to boot her out of power, she was not going anywhere. Is anyone surprised that I am being targeted? Is anyone surprised that I am somehow deemed unworthy to speak about American foreign policy? Or that they see me as a powerful voice that needs to be silenced? My leadership and voice will not be diminished if I am not on this committee for one term. My voice will get louder and stronger and my leadership will be celebrated around the world as it has been. So take your vote or not, I am here to stay and I am here to be a voice against harms around the world and advocate for a better world. I yield back. We'll be right back. Today's news requires more facts, more context, and more analysis. The world's never been harder to understand. That's why it's never been more important to try. MSNBC. Understand more. What if millions of black Americans had been compensated for slavery? Join me, Tremaine Lee, as I explore the untold story of one of the only black Americans who ever was. I talk to his descendants and discuss how reparations forever change their family's trajectory and imagine a reality where reparations are paid to the rest of black America. Into America presents Uncounted Millions, The Power of Reparations, a Black History Month series. All episodes available now. So breaking right now, House Republicans investigating President Biden's climate czar, John Kerry, saying that his talks with the Chinese Communist Party may be undermining our economy and threatening our U.S. foreign policy. That's a real thing that happened today. Republicans in the House Oversight Committee announced an investigation into John Kerry on the premise that his international climate negotiations were somehow nefarious because they involved China, the country that's the world's biggest emitter of greenhouse gases. Yes, really, that happened. This week, the week after multiple mass shootings, some Republicans in the House have started wearing little assault rifle pins on their lapels, as if they're American flags. Yesterday, a House Natural Resources Committee meeting for that committee got heated, not because of a policy disagreement, but because multiple Republican members insisted they should be able to bring loaded guns into committee hearings with them. Yesterday was also Ohio Congressman Jim Jordan's first hearing as the chair of the House Judiciary Committee. The hearing was literally titled The Biden Border Crisis Part One, implying there will be more parts to come, like Fast and the Furious or, or Fletch. That hearing started with a fight over how many times a day Congress people need to say the Pledge of Allegiance to show how patriotic they are. Again, yes, really, this is how business is being conducted in the House of Representatives. Today, Jim Jordan also announced that next week he will hold his first hearing as chair of the so-called House Subcommittee on the Weaponization of the Federal Government. So get ready. There is a lot more of this coming. It is all nonsense. It is all trolling. There is no real policy there. But there is messaging, lots and lots of very loud messaging. How should Democrats respond? Joining us now is the man with all the answers, Robert Gibbs, former White House press secretary for President Obama. Robert, it's so good to see you. I'm sorry we have to be talking about the utter insanity here. 
But what is the careful act that Democrats do? Because, right, on one hand, they have to show they're serious about governing. They have to stay above the fray. But on the other hand, Republicans are going to try and bait them into these symbolic votes. For example, today they had a vote to condemn the horrors of socialism for real. And 109 Democrats voted for it. Right. This is messaging and it's empty, but it's still messaging. So what's the right call here from a strategy perspective? Well, look, I think we saw the beginnings of this in the very beginning of the the Congress getting organized. We realized there's some enormous personalities now in the Republican caucus, the speaker not really in control of those personalities, and a lot of different people's agendas are going to get forced through, and you're going to see a lot of hearings like this. We, we know from the last election, too, that Republicans felt outside of the mainstream to a lot of swing voters. And we know from the early polling, the NBC poll just this past weekend, that the American people already think that the Republicans are going to overreach on investigations. So if you're a Democrat, let them overreach on investigations, right? Be focused on your messaging around, I think, the issues that are most important to people. Good jobs, affordable health care, affordable medicine, affordable education, making sure that the legislation that Democrats passed during the first two years uh, of the Biden administration is implemented well. But I would say focus on uh, focus on the issues that we know the American people care about the most. Try to highlight the chicanery and the insanity uh, because, you know, this is this is the group that is going to represent the Republican Party and demonstrate to the Republican people, to the American people, excuse me, really for the next 15 months, what the Republican vision is like. And it's worked out well for the last two Democratic presidents that have uh, played off of new Republican Congresses. They both went on to be reelected. Well, it sounds like you think the chicanery such as it is, is so um, well articulated, shall we say, that there's not really uh, the Republicans can only muddy the water so much. But I wonder if you think that extends to the debt ceiling. Right. Here is an example of Republicans trying to lead the country off of a, a cliff into financial catastrophe. But you can already hear, and even from moderate Senate Democrats, that there needs to be some sort of negotiation, that Biden can't be seen as just having a hard line and not communicating with the people who are basically a suicide caucus. Even today, Joe Biden, I want to play this down. This is Joe Biden talking about the initial talks he had with Kevin McCarthy. Let's hear what the president had to say about this. Let's just sort of kind of join hands again a little bit. Let's start treating each other with respect. That's what Kevin and I are going to do. Not a joke. We had a good meeting yesterday. I think we got to do it across the board. Doesn't mean we're going to agree and fight like hell, but let's treat each other with respect. Robert, I get Biden's posture in this, right? This is his brand, is to stitch the country back together. At the same time, saying we're going to have a respectful conversation implies that the conversation itself is worthy of respect. And from what I can tell, what the (laughs) Republicans are trying to do is absolutely insane and not worthy of respect. How do you play this if you're in the White House? Well, I think you you do it as they're beginning to do it now. And I, I wouldn't confuse a, even a cordial meeting for a negotiation. I, I think the president's going to be very stern uh, on making sure that both Republicans in the House and the American people understand 
the obligations around the debt ceiling, uh, and really what can and should happen, which is if Republicans want to have a debate and a discussion about spending, and if we want to do that as an American people, there's a budget and appropriations process in which we can do that. We can talk about wasteful spending. We can talk about uh, big tax cuts. But there's a process for that that's outside of the debt limit and outside of what what really hangs over uh, an improving economy. And I think, look, in some ways, Joe Biden is is ran on being the grown up in the room. And I think Joe Biden and Democrats are going to have to be the grown up in the room and and show the American people what they're all about now. That may not make some people on Twitter happy. It may miss the opportunity to be overly snarky uh, or or point out different things. But I, I think the American people, particularly when it comes to something as serious as the debt ceiling, want to see, see a serious group dealing with it. And I think that's the role Biden and Democrats should really focus on. What does he do when he walks into Congress next week for the State of the Union, right? This is ground zero for a series of insane investigations aimed at nothing more than political wounds. Does Biden call them out for this when he's standing in front of an audience of Republicans who are trying to take him down? I mean, what does he do? It sounds like you think he plays the statesman. I think he plays the statesman. I I wouldn't be surprised if you hear uh, something that contrasts an agenda focused on the things I talked about, affordability, healthcare, education, and jobs uh, versus uh, investigations uh, that are going nowhere. I I think you'll see very much, and I think the State of the Union isn't really what it used to be, right? (laughs) 20 years ago, 25 years ago, lots of people watched it, uh, and it could move numbers for a president. I think there are going to be smaller audience these is smaller audiences these days, but this is an important moment to really start to set up a governing contrast between uh, the people that are going to occupy a majority of the seats in in that room next week uh, and a president that quite frankly, is probably going to spend most of his time talking over the heads of those people to the to the American people at home. And I think that's what he should be doing. Talking over their heads is, yeah, he will definitely be talking over their heads. Robert Gibbs, former White House press secretary for President Obama. It's great to see you, Robert. Thanks for your time. After the police killing of George Floyd in 2020, police reform almost made it through Congress, but could not clear one very big hurdle. Today, in the wake of the killing of Tyree Nichols, President Biden and congressional black caucus members put that reform right back on the table. What they're calling for and whether it might happen this time. That's next. In 2021, Kyle Rittenhouse stood trial for fatally shooting two men and wounding another with a semi-automatic rifle during an August 2020 protest over police violence in Kenosha, Wisconsin. The victim's families hoped for justice, and Rittenhouse was charged with multiple crimes. In the end, he was fully acquitted. While some on the left, like California Governor Gavin Newsom, worried about the message the verdict might send to armed vigilantes, some on the right praised Rittenhouse as a hero. Donald Trump congratulated him and then invited him to Mar-a-Lago. But the families of the victims were not done. John Huber, the father of Anthony Huber, who tried to disarm Rittenhouse before Rittenhouse shot Huber dead, he filed a wrongful death lawsuit against Rittenhouse and local law enforcement. 
Hoover's family alleges that police officers deputized Rittenhouse and conspired with him to harm protesters. They say those actions violated Hoover's civil rights and caused his death. The law enforcement officers filed a motion to dismiss the lawsuit based in part on a legal doctrine which protects police officers from personal liability in civil claims, just like this one. That legal doctrine is called qualified immunity. And yesterday, a judge ruled against that motion. The case can proceed, at least for now. The judge says the question of qualified immunity is still a live matter, which the judge will decide at a later date. Hoover's parents said in a statement, make no mistake, our fight to hold those responsible for Anthony's death accountable continues in full force. Anthony will have his day in court. A day in court, a way around qualified immunity, which has protected so many officers who have shot and killed unarmed civilians like Tyree Nichols and too many others. That, that day in court, is what members of the Congressional Black Caucus discussed with President Biden and Vice President Biden at the White House this afternoon. They want the president's help in passing the George Floyd Justice in Policing Act. That bill passed the House in 2021, but it fell apart in the Senate. And the sticking point was qualified immunity. Will the, ba- will the bill have a different fate with this Congress? President Biden put it this way today. My hope is this dark memory spurs some action that we've all been fighting for. Joining us now is Philip Ativa-Goff, co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity and chair of the African-American Studies and, Profe- uh, and professor of psychology at Yale University. I feel like we're missing a word in that introduction. Philip, thank you for being here tonight. Um, this is, you know, rarely do I feel the need to get very specific about parts of the law in such in such detail but qualified immunity is the thing here right this is holding police officers account officers accountable in civil cases because for people who do not know when we're talking about criminal charges for police officers the police are criminally charged in less than 2% of fatal shootings and convicted in less than a third of those cases so it's vanishingly rare to have police held accountable for fatal shootings in criminal charges civil cases are a different matter Can you explain how we came to live in a world where qualified immunity is the thing police can count on um, as a shield effectively in cases where there appears to be gross negligence? Sure. I'll try and do it without getting extra, extra nerdy for you and the audience. (laughs) Um, But I got to say, I'm a professional nerd, so bear with me. We want Um, you to be as nerdy as you need to be. Essentially, what happens in 1982, there's a Supreme Court case. Um, people are concerned that um, not just law enforcement, but um, the staff of elected officials won't be able to go about doing their jobs if they're worried that every little thing they do could be litigated um, uh, and could become sort of a political football, kind of like what we saw in Congress today. <laughs> um, so the Supreme Court expands, um, in Harlow versus Fitzgerald, expands the sort of blueprint for what qualified immunity can do and essentially says, if there wasn't an explicit example of this very thing being illegal before, then you can't be uh, held accountable for it going forward. Um, And the cases where it comes up, like exactly uh, the case that you uh, uh, led with uh, on Kyle Rittenhouse, are so disgusting. Someone has done something so obviously unreasonable and egregious, and yet there wasn't a case just like that before, and so we're not able to hold law enforcement accountable somehow. We throw our hands up um, because of the doctrine of qualified immunity that people get really outraged about it. 
Um, so that's why there are folks who say we got to get rid of it. Um, I can't quite tell you what the argument is about why we've we've got to keep it. I can say that the argument that gets advanced is, well, no law enforcement will want to do their job, but no surveys of law enforcement, no serious social science of law enforcement supports that as a reasonable conclusion. Um, but that that's essentially what it is, and that's part of what um, the argument has been about uh, with regards to the justice and policing and, and QI. And basically, I mean, qualified immunity, the advent of quality, qualified immunity, I mean, though, though there are cases that strengthen it in the 80s, it starts in the civil rights era, hmm. which is when people first start saying what the police are doing to civilians is not right. And it's the first time there's justice for people. And then quickly, I think between 1961 and 1967, qualified immunity crops up to basically protect the people who are doing wrongs against the weakest members of society or the most marginalized, if you will. I mean, that's not a coincidence, is it? That's right. So essentially, it gets it gets codified in 1967, expanded to the current form in 1982, um, and those are periods of time when you have particularly regressive forces interested in making sure that there's a carve out so that law enforcement doing dirty work that really appears bad. Um, and by the way, they didn't have uh, you know home video cameras in 1967, but the shock to the conscience of the nation was photographs in newspapers. There was new media that was showing pictures of things. You guys remember them maybe from that one class that folks uh, took during Black History Month where the fire hoses um, are being turned uh, against uh, uh, school children, the police dogs are being turned. Those same kinds of things where all of a sudden we're seeing as if for the first time, wow, they're really doing terrible things to black folks. That's the first time we we, uh, see it. The second time we see it in 1982. And now there is great outrage about it. But as we're moving to think about what Congress can do, I think it's important that Though it has those terrible, disgusting roots, and it is it is absolutely ideologically on principle, on principle a thing we got to get rid of, it, it is not going to solve all of these problems. It has been named as the sticking point for the Justice and Policing Act. I don't know that that's real rather than politics. And of the cases that qualify for qualified immunity, the best research we have is only about 30% of the cases actually end up invoking it even a little bit. And it's not even clear how many of those cases hinge or turn on qualified immunity. So I don't want us to think that even if we get it through, that that's solving like you know, a huge swath of this accountability issue. It is an important piece. It's a principled piece because it's so disgusting to us to look at, but it is not the largest lever that we could get done. So I don't want, I want to adjust people's expectations, even if it makes it through Congress, that being a vanishingly thin margin, even on its own. Well, we know that there's action at the state level around qualified immunity, but there's another part of the civil cases that I think bears highlighting. (laughs) If in fact, law enforcement is found guilty in a civil case, who pays who pays the civil payout? This is shocking to me. I did not know this. The government, the local government, not the police department, local government, and in some cases, taxpayers are the people that pay out. Like There is a, a world in which Tyree Nichols' family sues in a civil case, and the people of Memphis have to foot the bill for a police department that beat to death Tyree Nichols. Is that right? So let's make it even more specific. Um, Tyree Nichols is killed in Memphis and Tyree Nichols family pays for the misconduct, right? Because if they are taxpayers in that city, that's exactly how it works. Um, There are so many protections against officers being held individually um, accountable. By the way, Individual officers are not walking around with millions of dollars to do these kinds of settlements. So when we have Rampart of $125 million or in Baltimore, the $13 million just for the gun uh, trace task force, the uh, individual officers couldn't do um, that kind of compensation. But yes, it comes back to the city. 
Um, and God forbid the city is fi- finds a way to move around that, the union would then protect and indemnifies individual officers. Right. So it is not the case that the officers pay a price outside of the criminal context. Um, the city is paying a price. And at the very least, the union is pay- paying that price in insurance claims that it's set up to make sure don't actually affect the budget in any way. Uh, it is it is just the, the level of insanity and sh- like wrongness in all of this. Philip Atibagoff. Um, you did not nerd out. It was br- a brilliant explanation. Thank you for your insight and wisdom as, off- as always. Co-founder and CEO of the Center for Policing Equity. It's always good to see you. Good to see you. We'll be right back. We have now lived through three weeks and four days of the House under the speakership of Kevin McCarthy. And the fun new thing we get to experience this week is the first committee hearings under new Republican chairs. Here is some of what we have to look forward to. Can you tell me uh, how much how much COVID cash went to CRT? CRT. Critical race theory in education. It's, it's a racist uh, uh, curriculum used to teach children uh, that somehow their white skin is not equal to black skin and other things in education. Yeah. Uh, no, I do not know that. But I, I do know that there's f- provisions that the uh, federal funds generally are not used or supposed to be used for curriculum. Oh, it's a state. Oh, Mr. Dodaro, I have to tell you, in Illinois, that they, they receive five point one billion um, at at an elementary school there that that used it for equity and diversity. Um, so it's it's being used for these things. That was Congresswoman Marjorie Taylor Greene during the House Oversight and Accountability Committee's first hearing yesterday. She was grilling the Comptroller General about how how federal funds were used in the height of the pandemic. Let's unpack this. First, the claim that an elementary school in Illinois got a $5 billion payday. That would actually be amazing if it were true. Like, get it, elementary school, personal water fountains for everyone. The reality, however, is that the state of Illinois received that much money in 2021 from the American Rescue Plan to share among 851 school districts. A spokesperson said that the congresswoman misspoke and actually meant the whole state. But that aside, critical race theory does not pit children against each other over their skin color. And also, Illinois' plan for that money makes no mention of critical race theory curricula. What it does outline is an effort to hire more teachers and build a diverse workforce that reflects the student population, with a plan to make learning more equitable by giving all students computers so that their learning isn't limited by a lack of access to technology. Making classrooms more equitable and teachers more diverse is not racist, even if Marjorie Taylor Greene thinks it is. That is it for us tonight. We'll see you again tomorrow. Primary season is here. If you've got voting questions, we've got voting answers. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote. You'll find when and how to vote in your state's primary election. Visit NBCNews.com slash plan your vote today.